0: Be in the spot.
1: To the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien, and today is Thursday, the first of June, two thousand and seventeen. Each fortnight, we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy or optical astronomy, and this week our special guest is Dr. Jean-Pierre Macquart, senior lecturer at Curtin University in Perth, Western Australia. And he's going to tell us about a great discovery in the field of FRB research, the enigmatic fast radio bursts. In each episode, we'll have a news roundup to wrap up each show. We'll hear about what's up in the observable sky with Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. Hello, JP. Hello, Brendan. Excellent, JP. Let's get stuck right into it. First of all, can you tell us about where you grew up as a child, please, JP? How dark were the skies where you lived? And tell us a little about your school days in Sydney and how you originally became interested in science and space and what prompted you to study the sciences.
2: Well, I grew up in the southern suburbs of Sydney, in a little-known suburb called Lugano, where the skies were not particularly dark, although they were dark enough you could see things like Halley's Comet when it came around, which I remember fondly as a child. Yep. And I think it was just looking up at the stars that first got me enthused. There was actually quite a meeting of various different aspects of my life that caused me to become fascinated with astronomy. I think at that time there was a program by Carl Sagan called Cosmos that on the television, yep. and that was quite formative in shaping my passion for astronomy. But it could be said also that my parents had a strong influence my mother her profession is microbiology and my father was a chemist and and not the the pharmacist kind of course so (laughs) it's almost inevitable that i should become fascinated in science and i was interested in astronomy i think from a very young age and there were these pictures coming out from the anglo-australian observatory as it was known then taken by david malin these fascinating color pictures of, of nebulae and galaxies revealing these unknown vistas into the universe and that what really got me hooked up I wanted to understand what was going on in these things And then, of course, it's all very well to have the passion, but I think I was quite lucky in my school years. So my parents' strong opinion that I should have a good education, and they did their best to make sure that happened. So they sent me to a school in the centre of Sydney called Sydney Grammar, where I was lucky enough to have quite a few good science teachers. And in fact, the physics and chemistry teachers that I had in my final few years there were excellent in, in inspiring me to, to go on further with science and they had that ability to communicate their passion for the science and to communicate the knowledge and I think that's what set me up well to go into university and an attempt to uh, pursue a career in, in astrophysics.
1: Fantastic. Now your first science degree was in physics where you were awarded a BSc first class honours at the University of Sydney. What made you choose the University of Sydney?
2: Looking back, it's hard to, to pinpoint any individual cause. One could say it's sever- serendipity. <laughs> I think in those days, really, the choice was between the University of New South Wales and the University of Sydney, at least if you lived in Sydney and you didn't want to move elsewhere. And I did, when I was in uh, year 10 or year 11, uh, contact people, both at the University of New South Wales and the University of Sydney, about work experience. Yep. And I did some work experience at the University of New South Wales and And I I quite enjoyed that. But somehow I got the sense that there was a little bit more that uh, appealed to me, at least, about the University of Sydney and the astrophysics program that went on there. So that's what I chose. You could say I tossed a a mental coin. But but for better or worse, that's where I ended up. And I, I feel quite happy about the decision I made, of course.
1: Obviously, yes, and then you went on and you stayed there to do your PhD in theoretical astrophysics and you studied quasars and SAG-A while you were there and I see you had some papers published in the Astrophysical Journal during your PhD. What was your thesis about?
2: Well, the thesis was... Broadly about propagation effects in, in interstellar space and how they might influence the properties of some of these things like quasars that we observe. So around about the time that I was doing my PhD, the Australia Telescope Compact Array had discovered this quasar that varied on timescales of about half an hour. Which is astounding because it taken at face value that varies on a time scale of half an hour. A naive argument would be that it's about half a light hour across, which makes it exceedingly compact and, and, and appears to defy our understanding of the emission from these things. It, well, as I progressed through my PhD, it was it gradually uh, realised by those who were working on this that actually it would, had nothing to do with the actual quasar itself. It was the interstellar medium of our galaxy, the atmosphere of our galaxy, all the stuff that lies in between the stars that's yep. responsible for this thing varying on these such short timescales. So it's pretty much like the twinkling of stars in the atmosphere, but instead of it being caused by the atmosphere of the Earth, it's caused by the atmosphere of our galaxy and it happens at radio wavelengths and these things have to be very small to show this effect in the same way that when you look up at the night sky planets don't twinkle but stars do and it turns out that things have to be very much smaller to show this sort of effect called interstellar scintillation and I became interested in that and did some observations of that during the course of my PhD But I was also interested from a theoretical perspective of what happens when the radiation propagates through the interstellar medium, as it's called, this atmosphere of our galaxy, and the medium is magnetized. Yep. And it leads to an effect called Faraday rotation, which can rotate the plane of linear polarization in the source. So it can change the polarization properties. And one thing I was interested in, was what happens if the magnetic field varies on very small spatial scales in the interstellar medium. So we knew that the twinkling of these quasars is due to there being very small density fluctuations in this medium. And so we asked, well, what if there are very small magnetic field fluctuations as well, or very small fluctuations in what's called the rotation measure. So the rotation measure is a product of the electron density and the magnetic field. And could this alter the polarization properties of the these quasars. We did some theoretical work on that and one area that we realized that might actually be applicable is in that insane environment that exists right at the center of our galaxy, which is where Sagittarius A star lives, this black hole at the center of our galaxy. We know that there's all sorts of very dense gas around there and And we see towards that line of sight, very strong evidence of extreme turbulence. And we're trying to understand that. So we thought, well, maybe this uh, mechanism applies there. So that's what got me interested in the galactic center, which was something else that I did during my early years.
1: Excellent. That's awesome. So our understanding of what we're looking at is tempered by what we're looking through. That's fabulous.
2: Now, Very much so.
1: Can you tell us what you did between finishing your PhD in Sydney and taking up your current post at Curtin University?
2: I basically spent six and a half years travelling around the world, as one does in this profession. Astrophysics <laughs> is, of course, a highly international profession. Yep. If you want to broaden your experiences, there are a few better ways than to, to go overseas and work with other experts in the field. So I, I spent three years working principally with a Dutch researcher by the name of Gerda Brown um, over at the Captain Astronomical Institute yep. in the University of Groningen, which is a university town in the, the northern part of the Netherlands. Yep. And there's a telescope near there in that region of the, of the country called the Westerbork radio telescope, and he was uh, looking at another intraday variable source, in fact an intra-hour variable source, and trying to understand its properties. And because I'd become fascinated in intraday variability of quasars, and had acquired some experience in interpreting their properties, it was a very natural uh, sort of a fit, and I enjoyed that uh, time in the Netherlands immensely. It was a very dynamic environment. A lot of bright people quite a melting pot of all sorts of different nationalities and backgrounds, and it was a kind of experience that uh, one doesn't forget. But, of course, after that, after the three years, it was time to move on, and I took up a a Jansky Fellowship. I was awarded a Jansky Fellowship by the the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in the U.S., and I spent uh, one and a half years in a little town called Socorro in New Mexico in, in the United States. Yep. And Sakai was well known to radio astronomers as housing the headquarters for what's known as the Very Large Array, which is an array of dishes out on the plains of San Augustine. Yep. And so that was another melting pot of activity. You have all of these astronomers coming through this, this building on their way to making observations, interpreting their data. Uh, it was a, it was a great environment to work in. And uh, it was there I became interested in the uh, the scintillations or probing some of the scintillating properties. So again, this turbulent medium in our galaxy, probing it with quasars and asking, well, what can we tell about the turbulence that actually produces this flickering of, of the radiation? And if we understand that, could we turn it into a telescope to understand the emission from these pulsars? So pulsars have been known now for about uh, 50 years, but we still don't understand what causes their radio emission. It's one of these great unsolved problems in pulsar theory. And any handle you can get on it is highly valuable. And and that was one avenue that, uh, that I explored while I was there. After that, I moved still as a Jansky fellow to uh, to Caltech, the California Institute of Technology, yep. for two years. And I pursued pretty much the same work, looking at this pulsar scintillation work and and trying to come to grips with the data that we'd acquired. Of course, there are a team of us at at NRAO and and others around the world who'd acquired this data and were all trying to understand what on earth it was revealing about the interstellar medium of our galaxy. And it was at that point, after those two years were up, it was time to move back to Australia. And about that time, just before in fact, that was about when fast radio bursts were first reported. And they fascinated me instantly because I realized that all of these propagation effects that i had been thinking about for pulsars and for quasars, well, they could be applied to understand not just the interstellar medium, the atmosphere of our galaxy, but the intergalactic medium, that is the stuff that lies in between the galaxies. So it's at that point that I moved back to Australia and, and on to Curtin University.
1: Okay, you've painted an excellent picture there of collaboration and collaboration is a huge thing for modern astrophysics. Can you tell us about the relationship locally here in Australia between Curtin University, ICRA, the CSIRO and the teams you're currently working with?
2: Well, the particular team that I'm working with um, most strongly is is known as the CRAFT Collaboration. I'll spell out the acronym because it's certainly not an obvious one. It stands for Commensal Real-Time ASCAP Fast Transient Survey. Yep. And the idea there is to look at the high-time resolution universe. That collaboration was founded in late 2008, and it involved a number of teams. First of all, the CSIRO, because after all, they were building ASCAP at the time. Yep. And we need to to interface with the engineers and the astronomers at CSIRO who are are building this hardware. Particularly if you want to look at high time resolutions, it's not a standard telescope operating mode. It requires a lot of close collaboration with engineers and very smart people to make these sorts of non-standard things happen. It's not really in people's minds. And at the same time, we set up a, a collaboration with the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So uh, several people here, including Professor Stephen Tingay, had ties with people at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and they are interested in a similar project. So they collaborated with Curtin quite strongly in these early years, trying to design the instrumentation that would be capable of actually detecting things like fast radio bursts and thinking about how one would conduct such a survey in the first place. And then uh, more recently, of course, as ASCAP has come online, we've joined up with a team at uh, Swinburne University who have been conducting surveys for uh, FRBs with the Parkes Radio Telescope and the recently refurbished Malonglo Telescope. Yes, we've spoken with a few people from Swinburne and Malongo
1: quite recently. Okay, let's dig down and dive into some astrophysics now. Our listeners probably understand a bit about single radio telescope dishes or receivers. Can you explain what ASCAP is, please, JP?
2: LASCAP is one of these next generation radio telescopes that does things a little bit differently to the way traditional radio telescopes have operated. So in a single dish, of course, you have a single receiver that sits up at the focus of the telescope and collects the radiation. ASCAP is a little special because instead of having a single receiver up there, it actually has a grid, something approaching the the CCD that you have in a modern digital camera. It doesn't have quite the number of pixels that a modern digital camera has. It has 36, but it gives it a field of view of 30 square degrees, which is incredible because it enables the telescope to survey the sky very quickly. It can see a large portion of the sky at any one time. Combined with that, of course, is the fact that ASCAP consists of 36 of such dishes, yep. and so it works as an interferometer. So it has baselines, um, so that is that the dishes are separated by up to 6 kilometers, and so you can effectively make all of these telescopes work together with the resolution that a, a telescope of size 6 kilometers would have which gives you a fantastic ability to resolve detail in sources on the sky. And in the case of FRBs, it will eventually, although it isn't operational yet, this interferometric mode for detecting things at high time resolution will enable us to pinpoint the location of these fast radio bursts to extremely high accuracy. Thanks, JP.
1: That's awesome. Now, let's zoom in a bit on FRBs now. What are they and when and how were they first detected? And do they repeat or are they random bursts? Well, I wish I
2: knew what they were. I don't think anybody knows what they are and I think that's what makes them so fascinating because nobody predicted these things that were so bright that the very first one would saturate the back-end electronics of the Parkes telescope which (laughs) detected it on this millisecond timescale. Yep. So they're quite incredible in that regard. So these, they last a millisecond. They're extremely bright, much brighter than would have expected anything that comes from the far reaches of the cosmos to actually be. The reason I should mention that we think that they come from the far reaches of the cosmos is because this again these propagation effects through interstellar and intergalactic space come to the fore that if you when you look at the pulse the uh, the pulse dribbles in over a range of times because the telescope effectively observes at a range of frequencies and this medium that lies in between the galaxies and the stars actually retards the wavefront and the amount it retards the wavefront depends upon how much matter there is out there and the point is about this first FRB detection was that the wavefront was retarded so much, this pulse arrived so late at the longer wavelengths, that we knew there wasn't enough matter in our own galaxy to account for that. Um, so that the yep. matter, this delay, had to be coming from matter that lay well outside our galaxy and, in fact, at intergalactic and, and likely cosmological distances. Wow. As to whether they repeat or they're random bursts, again, this is a question at the forefront of the field. There is one FRB. We know of 30 so far. Yep. There's one FRB that we know repeats. And it's not because we haven't looked at the others. So we've spent a lot of time looking at at these other fast radio bursts to see if there have been repetitions and a lot of the hard work that people have done at Swinburne University, for example, have basically ended up in a a bunch of null detections. We we still only know of one that repeats and the question that one has led to is whether we're actually looking at, at two different populations of things that produce these fast radio bursts. There are things, there's obviously one type of event that can repeat time and time again. Not regularly, but it does repeat on a fairly consistent basis. On the other hand, if you see these these other things that are one-off and you don't ever see them again, well, you ask, well, were they catastrophic events? Did the thing that caused the burst actually cause the system to blow up so that it can never produce another fast radio burst? We don't know the answer to those questions yet.
1: Fair enough. You found one. Just a couple of days after configuring and turning on ASCAP, is that what you were looking for? And can you give us suspects on your discovery? Well,
2: in a nutshell, it was what we were looking for. We didn't expect it to be quite as bright necessarily as we found this one to be. But we were very deliberately looking for fast radio bursts and we weren't disappointed. I think we were quite pleased actually when the first one came in and we were able to verify that this telescope was indeed capable of detecting these things fairly readily and that's the important point about ASCAP. That's one of the advantages of having that wide field of view that when you have a 30 square degrees on the sky for a single telescope and we had actually arranged the dishes not to operate as an interferometer but in a fly's eye mode. So we had eight of them these dishes all pointing in different directions. So the cost of some sensitivity, we had increased the field of view and our chances of us finding the rare bright types of bursts. So that's what we found, a very bright burst, and if you look at the amount by which the radiation was delayed through intergalactic space, you can get a nominal distance for this thing, and you can infer a luminosity for this thing, and figure out how much power it output in the few milliseconds that it was actually turned on. And the remarkable thing about this particular burst is that it's the brightest if, well, probably second brightest after the, the very first Lorimer burst that was detected by Parkes, yep. although we don't, still don't know how bright that actually was. But this thing emitted about 3 by 10 to the 34 joules. Yep. There's a few milliseconds that it was active. So for those few milliseconds, it, just in the radio band alone, just in the small uh, range of wavelengths which this telescope was operating, we can infer that it was actually outputting a, an amount of energy that would... Over the same, uh, the same timing, it will be equivalent of about 100 million suns. Wow. And
1: it suggests in, that in the near future, there'll be a lot of optical, once we get direction and get accurate pointing happening, optical telescopes will be looking to see if there are any accompanying visual wavelengths coming through
2: as well as the radio. Well, this is the big question. Is, is there emission at any other wavelength? Yep. And one of the issues is that you know that the these bursts are so bright that actually what causes the radio emission has to be what's called the coherent process. Yep. And it's very likely that the specific emission process that's generating the radio emission does not operate at these other wavelengths. In fact, it's it's highly unlikely. It's quite specific to the radio. And so... The question is, if these are cataclysmic events, is there something else going on in the system that will also generate X-ray or optical emission or infrared or what have you? And we don't really know the answer. That There have been multi-wavelength follow-up observations of some of these FRBs and they've all turned up nothing so far. So it'll be very interesting once we get these precise positions to really go on the hunt. But the other thing that the precise positions give us is a distance to these fast radio boosts, and that's important in understanding the environments in which they go off and the distances.
1: What an exciting time, and when the full SKA square kilometre array comes online and combined with ASCAP, there's going to be a lot of these FRBs being detected
2: we really want to use them as a a kind of an astrophysical workhorse because even if we don't understand what's causing the emission, we can use them as kind of a cosmic way station that when you see the burst, you automatically, to be able to detect these things, you you have to measure this sweep of the burst arrival time with wavelength and so you automatically know how much stuff in intergalactic space these pulses have travelled through and so you know how many electrons or essentially how much matter how much ordinary matter that is as opposed to dark matter or dark energy but you know how much ordinary matter these things have propagated through so you you can very readily account for all of this uh, the matter that lies in between the burst and us
1: fantastic now jp you obviously have a passion for teaching new generations of astrophysicists can you tell us about some of your students and what they're working on
2: Well, it might come as no surprise that one of my students, Wayne Arcus, is working directly on fast radio bursts. So he's working on trying to understand how, once we have these measurements of how much matter these bursts have propagated through, how we turn this into an understanding of what's going on in the universe, how this ordinary matter, or as we call it the baryonic matter, is distributed in the universe. And that actually is quite an important aspect of modern astrophysics, because the things that go on in galaxies, supernova explosions, winds from stars and from the central engines of these galaxies. They can expel matter from the galaxies, this baryonic matter, and we'd like to know how they do that. This is a process called feedback, and by studying this distribution of baryonic matter in the universe, we can get a handle on that process of feedback and help understand actually how galaxies actually form and evolve in our universe. So there are quite far-reaching consequences to some of this work, and that frames an aspect of his thesis. Franz Kirsten, is uh, he already has a PhD, he's been working very closely with me as a postdoctoral fellow on uh, some of these aspects to do with pulsars and scintillation, so understanding the turbulent properties of the interstellar medium. So I still keep an interest in that topic very strongly. Thanks, JP. That's awesome. What exciting
1: times. Now, the microphone is all yours, Doctor. You have the opportunity to tell us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges that we face in science, in outreach, in education or blue sky research.
2: Well, it's hard to know where to start if I, I could rant for hours. But one thing I would say, that the SKA is an enormous opportunity to revolutionize science. If you look at the history of discoveries in astronomy, you often find, in fact, you usually find that that discovery is immediately preceded by a leap in technological capability. There's some key technology that opens up some key area of parameter space and that has enabled you to make that discovery easily. Yep. And I think those are the exciting times that we live in with the SKA and even with the Australian SKA Pathfinder here. This new phased array feed technology that gives us this wide field of view is very important here at Curtin University in fact and ICRA we are intimately involved in the Murchison-Winefield Array which is a low-frequency radio array that operates at kind of metre wavelengths slightly wavelengths about a metre long and longer and that has an even larger field of view of about 900 square degrees at, at any one time. And that's opening up the, the low-frequency radio sky here in Western Australia. And, and actually, it's quite exciting just seeing having these two telescopes on site. And we hope in the in the FRB business to actually get those two telescopes talking to each other and searching together simultaneously for these FRBs. But there is a counterpoint to all of this, and that is that in these large collaborations, you can easily think that the individual doesn't matter. And I think that you know, these are these are multinational collaborations, particularly the SKA. There are so many people involved. But I think actually in some of this research that we're doing at the moment, and FRBs illustrate this, there are still significant gains to be made by the individual. And that's what makes science so exciting and so rewarding. That you're not part of a machine. You come to work in the morning, and there are not many professions where you can come down, you can sit down at your office and you say, Right, what aspect of the universe am I going to tackle today? (laughs) Having the freedom to sit down and pit your mind against the universe is a fantastic opportunity, and it shouldn't be underestimated. We have the ability to reason and think logically, and, and we shouldn't throw that away. The individual really does matter in this business, and I think that can get lost in certain ways in science. I think I see broad trends in science to these large collaborations where, you know, you have uh, hundreds of people working on a particular experiment, say it's, uh, or even thousands, and the individual loses some sense of identity. But I think it's very important that science retains some appreciation for the individual. And I think even though we work in in a collaboration here trying to detect FRBs with this craft survey, we actually are a very tight-knit and dynamic group, and it, it makes it even more exciting because everybody still makes their individual contribution. There's a quote that I can remember reading when I used to travel between Sydney and the Netherlands and Singapore Airport and Changi Airport. I used to see this saying every now and again by G.K. Chesterton. They say, travel broadens the mind, but you must first have the mind. (laughs) And I think that applies to science in this age, that there are a lot of discoveries out there waiting to be made. Serendipity plays a big part, but you must be prepared for serendipity to come knocking on your door. Excellent.
1: Well, we're calling it a golden age of astrophysics here for both individuals and for teams. Thank you very much, Dr. Jean-Pierre Macart. It's been fabulous speaking with you. It might be my pleasure. Awesome. And the best of luck with your FRB research. We'll get back in touch in 12 months to see how it's all going. I expect 12 months is going to see a lot of
2: discoveries.
1: That was Dr. Jean-Pierre Macart with FRBs. Next up, Dr Ian Astroblog Musgrave with What's Up in the Night Sky? Hello Ian. Hello Brendan, how's it all going? All very well, thank you. Tell us Ian, what's up in the sky
0: this week? What's up in the sky this week is a couple of interesting things. Uh, Jupiter, uh, as usual, is our main event. Jupiter is now crossing the meridian, that is the point where it's highest in the sky, quite early in the evening, around about, uh, for Australians, it's around about 8 o'clock local time. It's quite high at times that are relatively easy to drag your telescope out without feeling like you have to fall asleep. Especially if want to show your kids or neighbours, they don't have to hang around till midnight for you to show them Jupiter at its highest. And, of course, remember, for seeing astronomical objects, the higher above the horizon, the better. It's in the darker part of the sky. You don't have so much turbulence. So it'll look really nice and clear. Excellent. And we've got some nice Jupiter events coming up uh, this Friday we have a double shadow transit. So when a moon, one uh, Jupiter, of Jupiter's Galilean moons transits uh, the face of Jupiter, sometimes it casts a shadow on Jupiter's face yep. and Europa and Io are casting their shadows on the face of Jupiter. You need a modest telescope to be able to see these the shadows against the face of Jupiter, but it should be quite nice even with modest instruments. Thursday the following week, we get another transit with the, the shadow of Io and also Jupiter and also Ganymede appearing from behind Jupiter, which should be quite nice. Excellent. Jupiter is always interesting to watch. Even in modest intru- instruments, you can see the bands of Jupiter, the the polar and equatorial bands, and the great red spot. great red spot will be crossing the, the centre of Jupiter at reasonable hours. So, for example, on Friday the 2nd, when you've got that beautiful double transit with double shadow transit, the great red spot should be roughly in the centre of Jupiter where, while all this excitement is uh, is happening.
1: And there's a lot of Juno images from NASA's Juno mission coming through on the internet. A lot of people are processing those images when Juno passed underneath the pole.
0: Oh, aren't they brilliant? Yes. You look at what we can get through our telescopes and you look at Juno, you go, yeah, okay. (laughs) The poles are always hidden from us, so we've never seen this level of detail before. Some amateurs can approach the level of detail of very good quality professional telescopes. Christopher Goh and Damien Peach are two amateurs whose images of Jupiter have incredible levels of detail. They're absolutely marvellous. We just can't see the poles, no matter how good your telescope is, whether it's Hubble or otherwise. And that level of detail in the poles, that's that's just brilliant. And it's very interesting how different Jupiter's poles are compared to Saturn's poles. Yep. Where Saturn, you've got that big regular hexagon at the poles. And with uh, Jupiter, you appear to have uh, just this amazing chaos. And they also got some good shots of Jupiter's rings from inside the ring. Yes spectacular too. That brings us to Saturn. Saturn is now rising shortly after sunset uh, and it's very easily visible from the early evening on, uh, making it a very good target for small telescopes. Saturn will be at opposition when it's biggest and brightest as seen from Earth on June the 15th. So approximately two weeks from now, it'll be at its biggest and brightest. Again, like Jupiter, because the orbit's so big, the size variation in Jupiter is relatively small compared to something like Mars, when you can see dramatic differences in the size of Mars at opposition. Yep. Venus also has dramatic size changes during its orbit, whereas Jupiter and Saturn, they get a little bit bigger, they get a little bit smaller, but it doesn't matter. You stick your telescope on them, they'll look pretty nice. Again, as I said in last week's podcast, if you pay close attention to the rings, you'll see that the rings will brighten much more than the Saturn itself immediately before opposition and then become less bright. Even through a small telescope, the rings of Saturn will look beautiful and look really, really nice. But also, as I've emphasised in previous podcasts, Saturn's in a really good position at the moment. It's almost at front of the heart of the galaxy. And these two weeks of the last two weeks, that um, Saturn will be within a binocular range of the Triffid and Lagoon Nebulas. Yep. After the next fortnight, it'll move a little bit away. And so that you won't be able to fit them both in the same binocular field. They'll still look very nice and you'll be able to sweep from one to the other, but they won't fit into the same binocular field. And it'll be a couple of months before Saturn comes back to that location. Very good. The other interesting object in the evening sky is Comet 2015 V2 Johansson. Yep. This is a bright comet. It was predicted to reach a magnitude of around about 7, which meant it would be very easily visible in binoculars. Unfortunately, it's about a magnitude fainter than we expected, so it's just a little bit brighter than magnitude 8. So it'll be a, a bit of an ask in binoculars but it's easily within reach of small telescopes. And it's in the northern sky. It's almost directly underneath Jupiter at the moment. So if you sweep down from Jupiter and a little bit to your right as you're coming down, the next brightest star is the bright star Arcturus in the constellation of Boots. And then a little bit below that is the next brightest star in Boots. And next week, the comet will be effectively between those two stars, a little bit off to the right, forming a triangle with them. But it'll be easy to navigate to the comet from Arcturus. And so that's another nice piece of guy to have a look at. In modest amateur telescopes, it will look like a fuzzy blob with a short tail. Yeah. But if you're doing astrophotography and you uh, take some long exposures, you'll see that it's got a, a nice little iron tail as well. It's not big and flashy, but it's a beautiful little comet. There's some nice colours in the stars around it, so it'd be something very nice to get even get a small telescope out and have a look at.
1: Very good. And what about the morning sky,
0: Ian? Morning sky is getting a little bit interesting. The two obvious features in the morning sky are brilliant Venus, which is dominating the morning sky at the moment and is quite high even at astronomical twilight, and below Venus. Close to the horizon at astronomical twilight is Mercury. But by nautical twilight, that's an hour before sunrise, Mercury is reasonably clear of the horizon and quite easy to see. Even as we're approaching civil twilight, you you should be able to see Mercury relatively easy. By uh, civil twilight, a half an hour before sunrise, Mercury is getting a little bit hard to see if you're you're not too sure where you're looking. So the early morning is dominated by uh, Venus, Mercury is still quite bright and readily visible up, uh, below it and to the, uh, to the right as you're facing east. But if you happen to have a pair of binoculars or very good eyesight, you might see what looks to be a, a dim star creeping up on Venus, and that's the planet Uranus. And uh, this Saturday, Uranus will be a mere two degrees from Venus. It's the closest it gets this time round. Now, two degrees is actually relatively far away in sky terms. It's about two finger widths away from from Venus. But it fits comfortably into the, uh, the field of view of 10 by 50 binoculars. And you'll be easily able to see Uranus as the next brightest object close to uh, Venus. And you should be able to watch it over the next few days, moving up close to and moving away from Venus in the morning. Sadly, it's too far away to fit in a telescope field. But if you so desire, you can with a small telescope, you can focus on Uranus and see that it's a, a, a tiny disk and then move up into Venus, which has now been in its waxing phase. And now Venus is no longer a crescent, but is, is a distinct half-moon shape. You'll also, if you've been following Venus over the past few months, you'll be noticing that it's been shrinking from this big, thin crescent as well as becoming less crescent, it's also becoming smaller. So it's still quite a reasonable size in even small telescopes, but it's now an obvious half-moon shape.
1: Very good. And Ian, do you have a tangent for us this week?
0: I do have a tangent for you, and let's go back to Jupiter. I remember I was talking about the shadows of the Jovian moons on Jupiter as being an interesting adjunct to the moons passing across the face. But every so often, something rather spectacular happens. I want you to cast your minds back to the 1990s when comet Shoemaker-Levy crashed into Jupiter. This was an amazing astronomical event. A major comet coming apart in those fragments, hitting Jupiter on successive days, generating clashes that that even amateurs could see. And through the Hubble telescope, you could see see giant clouds boiling off into space. And afterwards, there was a string of of dark scars that you could see rotating around Jupiter. Now, Shoemaker-Levy was obviously the most spectacular Uh, Since the impact of Shoemaker leaving back in 1994, we've had another six impacts of objects which may or may not be uh, comets or asteroids. or We know their impacts, but whether an impact by a comet or an asteroid is still unknown. So on May the 26th, an amateur who was videoing Jupiter saw a brief impact flash about 0.7 seconds and uh, other amateurs have since come forward. With similar images showing the impact, the importance of having other people see it is that what sometimes what may look like to be an uh, an impact flash may just be a cosmic ray striking your CCD camera. But if multiple people see the same flash at the same time, then you know it's a real thing. Now, this is actually a relatively small impact; it's a very, very short flash. But there was two brightness peaks were seen in that brief 0.7 second uh, time. And uh, amateurs are at the moment scanning Jupiter to see if more uh, dark scars can be seen. So far, no one's seen any, but it might take some time for material to bubble up from the surface. Or it may be that this was a relatively small impact. In terms of the other impacts, we've had impacts in 2009, 2010 2012 and 2016 and the 2016 uh, impact was probably one of the bigger ones but the 2009 and 2010 impacts left scars that were similar to the scars seen on shoemaker levy so people are quite interested in this it it gives us a way to probe the inner atmosphere of jupiter by what these uh, these impacts dredge up from the surface apart from being you know, a bit spectacular themselves. And it's probably Jupiter gets hit by an asteroid of a reasonable size a couple of times a year. And so with more amateurs scanning Jupiter with CCC devices and we're having more coverage of Jupiter, the likelihood that we will pick up an impact event is quite high. Now, you may say, well, okay, that's, that's Jupiter. What about other planets? Obviously, observing impacts on other planets can be much more difficult than uh, Jupiter. For example, Mars would be a good candidate being so close to the asteroid belt. But because Mars is so small, it's likely that it doesn't suck in as many asteroids as Jupiter does. Jupiter, because of gravity, can be thought of as a giant asteroid magnet, whereas Mars much smaller less likely to hit and less and, and its gravitational field is less likely to pull in lots of material and possibly Saturn we haven't seen any impact on Saturn but there is one object that's fairly close which we uh, spend a lot of time looking at and that's the moon okay. and yep. um, there's there's actually a long-running NASA program to look for asteroid or meteorite impacts on the Moon. It's been running since 2016. And there's also the uh, Lunar and Planetary Observers also have a meteor impact search which feeds into the NASA Lunar Impact Search. We've seen something over over 300 impacts through this this long-term monitoring of the Moon's surface and the record-breaking one was in, on 11th of September 2013. This uh, impact was so bright, it could have been potentially seen from Earth if you were watching the Moon. And theoretically, would have uh, gouged out a crater about 40 metres wide. Uh, I'm not sure if the lunar order has gone over this area to, to see if I could pick up that uh, fresh scar, uh, and that's something I might look up for next time. But uh, certainly, we can spend a lot of time looking for impacts, and especially uh, during uh, meteor showers, during the Leonid meteor shower. They were uh, looking carefully for uh, meteor impacts to see if they could pick up Leonids crashing into the moon. And at least one Leonid was picked up uh, during this time. So... We have a better idea of the density of meteors in the solar system. We have a, a better idea of the size of the things that are coming in uh, and the rates of cratering uh, in the contemporary solar system, which all gives us a, a, a better feel for the kinds of things that are out there.
1: Fantastic, Ian. And what's the moon doing at the moment, Ian?
0: Well, the moon is waxing and we're going to see some nice uh, moon events over the next few weeks. On the 4th, the moon is going to be very close to Jupiter, so that will look very nice. But most importantly, when we have the full moon, the full moon is going to be an apogee moon. Oh, yeah. Now, you've heard about the uh, uh, the super moons. <laughs> well, <laughs> an apogee, uh, the, the super moon occurs when you have a full moon occurring at perigee, when the moon is closest to the Earth. Now, because the moons are on a elliptical orbit. Sometimes the full moon will occur when it's very close to Earth. Sometimes the moon will occur when it's further away from Earth. So the super moons get all the love and attention, but the apogee moons, are when the moon, you get the full moon when it's furthest away from the Earth, they're noticeably smaller. If you've got really good eyesight and you can remember what the moon, what the moon looked like a couple of months ago. But still, what's a really good program for, for people to do is to take images of the Apogee Moon and uh, line them up with the next Perigee Moon. And so you can see the normal... The, the, well, it, telescopically, it's a, a really significant difference to an unaided eye. or you and me, it's a little bit hard to tell apart. Uh, again, you've got to have a really good memory to remember the last Perigee full moon, which occurred earlier uh, this year, and compare it with uh, with that. But if you have a photographic record, and uh, I've done this uh, beforehand, comparing the perigee and apogee moons, it looks really cool. And it can be quite fun to do.
1: Excellent, Ian. Thank you very much. In my case, I'm just lucky that I have the same thing for breakfast every morning because sometimes sometimes I think it would be difficult to remember. Now, at this stage, we'll remind our listeners that they can find... Astro blog on the internet to go to Ian's wonderful astronomy blog, and they could also follow Ian Musgrave on Twitter at at Ian F Musgrave. Well, thank you very much, Ian. We'll talk to you
0: in two weeks. Thank you very much. Well, I hope this particular uh, podcast makes an impact. <laughs> that, was, that was my horrible uh, joke <laughs> for the day. Okay, well, thank you very much for uh, having me on again, and clear skies, and may you see a meteor too.
1: Next up, the Astrophys News. (whistles) First up, congratulations to some citizen scientists. This is from the Australian National University, the ANU. More than 700 volunteer citizen scientists have helped identify more than 30,000 celestial objects, including a supernova that occurred 970 million years ago, hundreds of millions of years before dinosaurs emerged on Earth. Using images taken from the SkyMapper Telescope at the ANU Siding Spring Observatory, volunteer supernova hunters helped discover a star's dying burst. You might remember we spoke with Dr. Brad Tucker way back in episode 18 when he was talking about the expanding universe, and this is what he said last week. This citizen science project shows us that this is the exact type of supernova we're looking for, a type 1a supernova, to measure properties of and distances across the universe. Brad Tucker, lead researcher from the ANU Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics. The exploding star, called SN2017DXH, is one of seven potentially new supernovas reported to the transient name server. The team is tracking another 18 potential supernovas as well, according to their statement. Congratulations to all the team. Next, from ABC News, by Janelle Willier. Parker Solar Probe. NASA's journey to touch the sun. We've been to the moon, landed spacecraft on Mars, and had close encounters with other planets and Pluto. Next stop, the sun. Dreams of sending a spacecraft to explore the big ball of sea, the energy that warms our planet, has been on NASA's bucket list for 60 years, and now the ambitious mission to touch the sun is in its final phase before launch. Originally called the Solar Plus Probe, the mission was renamed overnight in honour of astrophysicist Professor Eugene Parker, who predicted the existence of high-speed solar winds, the mass of particles that are spewed into space from the Sun. Set to kick off next July, the plan is to plunge the Parker Solar Probe into the sun's corona, the hazy bit you can see around the edges of the sun during a total solar eclipse, to study this phenomena. We describe this as a mission of extremes, says Dr. Nicola Fox, mission project scientist at the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory the car-sized spacecraft will get closer to the sun than any other mission has. Travelling at the dizzying speed of more than 720,000 kilometres per hour, the probe will eventually come within less than 6.4 million kilometres of the sun's surface. That may not sound particularly close, but if you think of a sun and earth as being one metre apart, then our spacecraft would be located just four centimetres from the sun, said Dr. Fox, who is overseeing the build of the spacecraft. It will be hot, very hot. The probe will be in regions of the corona where temperatures exceed 1400 degrees Celsius, Dr. Fox said. What are we trying to find out? We've been studying the sun for thousands of years, and even though we now have remote sensing observatories and spacecraft that examine it in particular detail, Many questions still remain. The two big ones are, why is a corona on the outside of a sun at least 300 times hotter than the core? And why does the solar wind speed up? These questions are important because we literally live in the atmosphere of the sun, Dr. Fox said. This outer region gets accelerated and moves away from the sun, bathing all of the planets. When large events such as sunspots or coronal mass ejections happen, like they did last week causing aurora everywhere, they can have dramatic effects on our planet. And we look forward to seeing another successful NASA mission. And finally today, some more great news from the ANU. A team led by ANU researchers has just published a new paper on antimatter in nature astronomy. And the following report is quoted from an ANU media release. Their headline is, Scientists Solve Mystery of How Most Antimatter in the Milky Way Forms. A team of international astrophysicists led by ANU has shown how most of the antimatter in the Milky Way has formed. Antimatter is material composed of the antiparticle partners of ordinary matter. When antimatter meets with matter, they quickly annihilate each other to form a burst of energy in the form of gamma rays. Scientists have known since the early 1970s that the inner parts of the Milky Way galaxy are a strong source of gamma rays, indicating the existence of antimatter, but there had been no settled view on where the antimatter came from. ANU researcher Dr. Roland Crocker said the team had shown that the cause was a series of weak supernova explosions over millions of years, each created by the convergence of two white dwarfs, which are ultra-compact remnants of stars no larger than two suns. Our research provides new insight into a part of the Milky Way where we find some of the oldest stars in our galaxy – said Dr. Crocker from the ANU Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics. Dr. Crocker said the team had ruled out the supermassive black hole at the centre of the Milky Way and the still mysterious dark matter as being the sources of the antimatter. He said the antimatter came from a system where two white dwarfs form a binary system and collide with each other. The smaller of the binary stars loses mass to the larger star and ends its life as a helium white dwarf, while the larger star ends up as a carbon-oxygen white dwarf. The binary system is granted one final movement of extreme drama. As the white dwarfs orbit each other, the system loses energy to gravitational waves, causing them to spiral closer and closer to each other, Dr. Crocker said. He said once they become too close, the carbon-oxygen white dwarf ripped apart the companion star whose helium quickly formed a dense shell covering the bigger star, quickly leading to a thermonuclear supernova that was the source of the antimatter. Thank you, Dr. Crocker and the ANU team. See you in two weeks. Bye now. Radio wave!